We're going to explore that together as we look to our Lord now in prayer. <clears throat> so, Father, we're praying for tremendous wisdom as we look into this book, this book part of the wisdom section of scriptures. And we're asking that we can glean the insights of how wisdom relates to the world. So these minutes to come are important. We're asking that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus <coughs> and him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Dr. Diane Kamp has written extensively from the perspective of the medical profession. She has been a professor of medicine at Yale. Cancer research is her area of expertise. And Dr. Kamp writes that my job as a doctor is to take care of families like Job's. Specifically, I treat children with cancer, the most poignant of innocent sufferers. And sometimes in their hospital rooms, I find their parents reading the Bible. Many of these moms and dads have never read the Bible before. But during this hellacious pilgrimage, they find the book of Job. Why? With all the gentle and comforting words of Scripture, why do those who suffer seek out the toughest book in the Bible? Even non-believers turn to its pages. I'm always aware on a given Sunday morning that there's a wide spectrum of people in all the services, secularists, unbelievers, and religionist unbelievers on one side of the spectrum, and then you've got mature believers on the other, and everything every between, and you've got to swing the pendulum, touch the various points along the way. I think the book of Job does that for us. Because it deals with the big issues, the big complex issues of life. So what I want to do now is to explore the opening verses, verse 1 through 12, together with you as we get this thing going. And we're going to look at two tension points that we find along the way. And the first comes out of verse 1 through 5. I think Dr. Comp would be nodding her head as we begin to develop this. Number one is we consider here the tension of God and suffering in these verses. I want you to note, first of all, with me, what I'll call the personal characteristics here, which are valued by God. Now, when I say the personal characteristics, it's because God is now giving you and me a perspective on how he views Job. But also, from the human vantage point, here's how others are viewing Job as well. Now, this is very important, these opening verses. Because as you see in your insert this morning for the bulletin, I penned these opening thoughts that when we, you and I, when we ponder the realm of suffering and loss, note these words, it's important to bear in mind that we, you and I, we prepare for such difficulties best by preparing our minds and hearts before they come not by waiting until they come. You don't want to end up in the ER and then look for the book of Job. 
No, what you want to do is to begin to develop such a mature relationship with God prior to so that when the difficulties, when the challenges, and when the extremes of life find their way into your life, which happens in this fallen world, you have, you've got a head start on this. You're well prepared. Now, I want you to notice that Job's got a head start on all this. He's well prepared. Because now you pick it up in verse 1. I can imagine Dr. Comp, she's pondering this whole thing unfolding. When you and I are told here that there was a man in the land of Uz. I don't think Dr. Oz came from there. I think he's from Turkey, to be honest with you. Um, they, they spelled Uzi, not, he, not him and Ozi. Check out Dorothy and Toto on that one. But there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Now that setting tells us something of significance because this was a region, according to the Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia, edited by a professor of mine, uh, Dr. Merrill Tenney, that was on the borders of Edom and Arabia. Well, we are told here something of significance with regard to Job, that this man was blameless. Now notice that it says here he is blameless. It does not read that he is sinless. And there's a difference between the two. So as you and I are exploring this, we've got to bear in mind that Job himself understands that we are we come to this world sinful by nature and fallen due to the sin of our original parents, Adam and Eve. And now all the suffering that has exasperated the world condition can be rooted in the fallenness of humanity. So he knows he is not sinless, but at the same time, here is God speaking of Job at this point. And Job is referred to as blameless. Can you imagine God looking upon you and saying, this is a blameless man, this is a blameless woman. Well, sinful, but blameless with regard to the accusations the evil one's going to uh, bring his way. Notice furthermore, he's described as upright. And then, because this is found in the in the section of wisdom in your Old Testament. The wisdom books are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. They're also known as the poetic books. He is described as one who feared God. Now, the wisdom books deal with the whole principle of the fear of God, don't they? For example, in Proverbs chapter 1, and verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of God. In the fear of the Lord is the beginning Furthermore, of wisdom. Now, Job is an incredibly wise man. Dealing with the fallenness of humanity and you're dealing with the pain and the suffering that comes with it, it's critically important that you and I begin to cultivate a sense of wisdom on how to understand God in relationship to the fallenness of this world. This man, then, was blameless in the eyes of God, one who feared God and turned from evil. Torn Wells, if you listen to K-Love or Air One or something like that, you, you know the song known. 
that it's so unusual, it's frightening, Wells sings. You see right through the mess inside me, and you call me out to pull me in. You tell me I can start again, and I don't need to keep on hiding. I'm fully known and loved by you. You won't let go, no matter what I do. And it's not one or the other. It's hard truth and ridiculous grace to be known, fully known, and loved by you. I'm fully known and loved by you, exclamation point. Well, Job is fully loved and known by God, and God knows him, calls him blameless, calls him upright, speaks of the fact that he fears God and turns away from evil. What a way to begin. And so you ponder now that that statement that we've offered in our insight in mind that we prepare for such difficulties best by preparing our minds and hearts before they come and not by waiting until they come. Now, the essence of Job's nature in verse 1, who he is. Now you get to what happens in terms of what he has in verse 2. And so the evil one is going to go after what he has, but he's not able to go after who he is. Who tries. So notice verse 1 is foundational. You begin with who he is before you get to what he has in verse 2. Notice that God has chosen. That is his starting point. Job's character, his nature, before he gets to what Job possesses. Verse 2. And notice what he's got. He's got a lot going for him. And there were born to him seven sons and three daughters, you see. And he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys and very many servants so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Which tells me and tells you at the same time that most likely we can now root Job in the time period of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, so on. Where you will find similar economic situations Similar statements about prosperity, similar statements about possessions, and so on. You not have to have enough grazing land, and so here you see a situation unfolding where this man, where now we can place him somewhere in the 2000 B.C. time period, in the period of Abraham, is known as greatest of all the people of the East. And this is God's take on him. And here then, Satan is very well aware of the fact of what Job has. But Satan's problem is that he assumes that what Job has and what Job is is one and the same. But you can take away what Job has, and you can't take away who Job is. And there's where Satan fails in this, in this epic poem that you and I are pondering. So you look at that, and you consider his prosperity. My mind goes back to a biography of John Wanamaker, one of the great uh, businessmen of our nation's history, who had said, quote, I have, of course, made large purchases of property in my lifetime. And the buildings and grounds in which we are now meeting represents a value of approximately $20 billion. And this is not today. 
This was in a previous time period. But it was as a boy in the country, at 11 years of age, I made my biggest purchase. In a little mission Sunday school, I bought from my teacher a small red leather Bible. The Bible cost me $2.75, which I paid in small installments as I saved. That was my greatest purchase, for that Bible made me what I am today. Well, the New York newspapers picked up on this. Tribune captioned it, these words, quote, later deals in millions are called small compared with buying a Bible at the age of 11. Wanamaker understood verse 1 is foundational, out of which you then build off of verses 2, 3. In other words, he understood that God is the owner and we are the managers, so that when you lose something in life or someone from life, if you view yourself as the manager and God as the owner, you're able to say, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord, which is exactly what we'll be able to spot Job saying next week when we're together. Well, now, you move at this point from what I will call the outward influence he has upon society to the inward influence he has upon the family. And for those who have adult children in particular, though anybody who is involved with parenting, there are principles here you've got to bear in mind when you get to four and five. Because in four, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, meaning on each birthday, you see. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. I don't know where dad is at this point. I guess he didn't get invited. I don't know. Us dads have it rough, you see. Well, you get to verse 5. And here is where I, I love the initiative of Job. Now, again, you've heard me say, and if I ever write a book on leadership, opening chapter will be initiative. Others will have other ins, such as inspiration or influence, you see, integrity and on. But verse 5 deals with initiative. When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He's proactive. It's not passive. Parenting, effective parenting, effective uncle, effective aunt, you have to be proactive, not passive. And so he initiates. Job would sin and consecrate them. Notice his spiritual disciplines. He would rise early in the morning. Are you doing that? with a burden for both outside the home and inside the home. Now, remember, now they're outside the home. They're no longer under his roof. And yet he still has this passionate burden spiritually to have their lives shaped by God. So what does he do? He offers burnt offerings according to the number of them. And there's a lot of them. There is a cost to parenting. He's got to give up something. He gives up something. There's a price to be paid here in, the, in these offerings. There's a cost to parenting. It's costing him time getting up early, maybe a little less rest, something from the livestock, and so on. But he knows that when you're dealing with highest value, 
Value and price have got to be understood in relationship to one another. Parents understand that. So he offers burnt offerings according to the number of them. But now notice what's so burdening his heart. This is a, a wise father. Wise father. Job said, quote, it may be that my children have sinned. He's already burdened, you see, with their spiritual formation. Even though they're no longer under his roof. It's a burden that they would have cursed God in their hearts. Now, this issue of the cursing God appears again and again and again. Even Job's wife will challenge Job to curse God. Which interests me at this point. Are they on the same page spiritually? Because he's burdened that the children might curse God. And here he's got his own wife challenging him to curse God and die in these opening chapters. And so we've got tension here in the marital dynamic. Yet he is so burdened, you see, that they are right with God. And that he sacrifices, he calls up, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Maybe you haven't heard it from their lips, but I'm burdened for their hearts. Are you burdened for the hearts of your loved ones? And this is a proactive dad who may not have the best marriage, frankly, on the face of the earth. There's tension spiritually between he and his wife. Curse God and die, she would say to him. Maybe she doesn't want to be his caregiver when he is so afflicted. But notice furthermore, this is a man who perseveres. It says at the end of verse 5, this Job did continually. Bruce Lockerbie. He writes, when I was just 11 years old, our family drove from Toronto to eastern Ontario to the region north of the St. Lawrence River, where my father had been born. We reached the little villages of Ventnor and Spencerville just before midnight. The residents had long since gone to bed, but Dad needed directions to find the old homestead where we were to spend the night. Reluctantly, he stopped at a darkened house, knocked on the door. After several minutes of waiting, the yard light came on and an older man opened the door. I could hear my father apologizing for the inconvenience. And then he identified himself as the son of Pearson Lockerbie. That was my grandfather, who had died more than 20 plus years before. Ah, oh, come in, said the man. Come in, I'm honored. No trouble at all. We're blessed. We knew your father. He was a great man. Lockerbie writes, that's the greatest legacy a man can leave his, his family. And I would add a mother too. What kind of legacy are you leaving? See the spiritual disciplines here. Uh, 2018 was um, a significant year for many in terms of loss. Lord gave, Lord's taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. 
find that later, as we'll see next week in verse 21. That not only the outer sphere of life, but the inner sphere of life, both the public person and the private person, have to find harmony under the lordship of God. And so this is high impact. So now you and I have to ask, are we developing a legacy in the private sphere as well as in the public sphere of everyday living? And so there you have verses 1 through 5, which is foundational. You start with who he is of one before you get to what he has in verses 2 through 5 and so on. So thus far as we consider this tension here of God and suffering, you know, first of all with me, the personal characteristics which are valued by God, even though it may not be valued by society. Now, once that's foundational for your life, and you have introduced into your thinking what we pen in the bulletin for this week, bear in mind that we prepare for such difficulties best by preparing our minds and hearts before they come, not by waiting until they come. Once you get to the essence of who you are in relationship to God before you deal with what you have, he's owner, your manager. Now you're ready for the second tension point that comes out of verse 6 down through verse 12. And that secondly, as we consider the tension here of God and suffering, note, furthermore now, the cosmic struggle, which is addressed by God. The personal characteristics are valued by God or in 1 through 5. But now the cosmic struggle, which is addressed by God in verse 6 to 12. 1 through 5 deals with what's apparent. Verses 6 to 12 deals with what's hidden. And there in verse 6, you and I are told, this is a historical point. There was a day when the sons of God speaking of the angelicals, came to present themselves before the Lord. Now notice that this is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And you say, well, Gary, what's so significant about that? Well, go back to your insert again. Let me read a little more of what was penned. That while some might assume the major theme in the book of Job is suffering, in reality, the major theme is God. We'll note the various names for God. And such a name is used, for example, in today's passage, the name Lord, Yahweh. That is the covenantal relational name for God is used. But in the conversations Job has with his supposed counselors, El Shaddai, which means God Almighty, is dominant. They've got more of a general view of God than a personal relationship with God. Watch out for counselors who've got a general view of God but don't understand the personal relationship view of God. So now, they come, this host in verse 6, to present themselves before the Lord. That means then that God is sovereign. They're checking in. They're reporting. But interesting enough, Satan also has to report in. Now Satan, in the Latin, or rather in the Hebrew, uh, carries with the idea of the accuser. And in particular, it was used in a courtroom setting that one is making a formal accusation against another. So Satan now is positioning himself in the cosmic courtroom of the universe, and he is now finding a way to get a sense of legitimacy. Now you say, well, why is he here? I don't know. Ask Dr. Kaiser. I don't know. 
just teasing. I did Walt Nancy's wedding two years ago. I love him. So he was my professor, you see, and I'm his pastor. Well, you know, Judas was positioned among the 12. The evil one has a way, you see, of infiltrating. But God is sovereign, evil is not. And when you feel as though you're being so overtaken by evil, I want you to remind yourself of that. Satan has to report in. He's still accountable. Now, what unfolds next in these verses, 6 to 12? This is God, this is leadership. Are three significant initiatives that are taken here in these verses? In the cosmic realm, hidden from eyesight, requires biblical insight. And when things look bad on the basis of eyesight, draw upon biblical insight. Here's your first initiative. comes out of verse 7. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come? Now, God's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows where Satan has been. This is a rhetorical question to draw Satan out. But notice that Satan doesn't begin the conversation. God does. Initiative is here with the sovereign one. So the Lord, Yahweh, the covenantal God, said to Satan, Where have you come from? Rhetorical question. Well, Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro. He's picking up frequent flyer mileage, you see. Walking up and down on it. Well, this is critically important because Peter himself, who would have found that Jesus Christ was saying that Satan wants to sift you like wheat, would also be one to later say, with regard to the evil one that he prowls about like a roaring lion in 1 Peter chapter 5. So there, what he's saying is that there's movement here. Why is there movement? It's because Satan is not omnipresent. He is limited. He's a fallen angel. This is very important for us to understand. And so then, he has limitations. He has to move about. And so the Lord now, beginning in verse 8, delivers a second initiative. The second initiative is found in verse 8 and down through verse 11, where the second time you find the phrase, the Lord said. You saw it in verse 7. The Lord said to Satan. Satan has to respond. Verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, another question, have you considered my servant Job? Now, at this point, Job would probably say, I wish you wouldn't pick on me. Why me? But have you ever wondered that question? See, there are certain things in the cosmic realm that are known that are hidden to us. 
But what an extraordinary thing that God, in fact, because he understood the principles of verse 1 very clearly about the foundational character of Job, could say such a thing. He doesn't say it about others. Could it be, in fact, that Job will be afflicted because of his greatness before God? Many times people have showed up in my office and they were wondering, what have I done wrong? Occasionally, when it seems pertinent, I might say, what have you done right? That you deserve such. Maybe God is so impressed with you. That what God is doing is that he has built a platform for the unbeliever to observe the believer here. Because there's nothing more significant than being able to communicate truth in the midst of trials. If believers didn't have trials, they might not necessarily have the platform to communicate the truths to the degree in which they do when they're suffering. Because then when the unbeliever is suffering, they're where they're going to look. They're going to look at somebody who is able to offer practical insight on the adventure of living in the fallenness in the painfulness of everyday life experiences, you see. Your integrity is now on full display. Trials build a platform for truth, and as you've heard me say, a faith which can't be tested is a faith that can't be what? Trusted. Now, God has entrusted Job with much, Job trusts God even when he doesn't have that much. That will be an unfolding drama here in these verses of weeks and months to come. But you're into this second initiative, and so God said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him in all the earth. And now I want you to link this back to verse 1. Blameless, upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil. Remarkable. But now, notice the counterpunch. Verse 9. Satan answered the Lord. Satan answered the Lord at this point and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Now you say, Gary, short, succinct. What's there to be said about that? Notice how Satan refers to the sovereign one, God. Up until this point, he's referred to as Yahweh, Lord. But the first reference to the sovereign one from Satan is not Yahweh, the covenantal relational God, but simply God, more generic now, you and I traffic among people who've got a very generic God, more of a general view of God, not specifically the specialized God who relationally has sent Jesus into this world to die for our sins. He's the covenantal God. But just as in the Garden of Eden, when Satan approaches Eve, he doesn't refer to him as Lord, he refers to him as God. It's fascinating the, the way in which the Words are associated with the drama of fallenness of humanity. How do people refer to God in the midst of suffering? It's an interesting question that you 
need to ponder when you watch how people deal with God and suffering in the dynamics of their own lives. And so now, Satan responds with a question of his own to God's question. Does Job fear God for no reason? Which is the basis for my, my title for this study this morning, for no reason. Well, here now, he then wants to enter into a Faustian bargain of sorts. I'll get to that in coming weeks. Have you not put a hedge around him? In other words, he recognizes God has already blessed Job. He's no fool. And his house and all he has on every side, you've blessed the work of his hands, which is what verses 2 onward are all about, aren't they? He's got the sheep, he's got the camels, he's got the oxen, and so on. This man is an outstanding businessman. But notice where Satan's focused. He's overlooked verse 1 and gotten verse 2. He's targeting what Job has, not who Job is. And that's where he's going to fall short of the mark. So Job's going to lose the blessings, but he doesn't lose the grace. And many times in the Christian experience, you will lose the blessings, but you can't lose the grace. In this fallen world. You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land, but... Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And there's that word curse again. Job's been burdened about his children cursing God. Now, Satan's got this idea of trying to get Job to curse God. Uh, years ago, back in the days I was a uh, senior pastor in New England, uh, had row upon row of medical students from Yale University, and they were be off to the side, and they were grappling with the big issues of life. They come in these thick notebooks as I was working through Job, trying to understand the why behind the what's of this world, one of the wives of the medical students came up to me at the end of a particular exposition, and she said, so, Gary, what do you consider to be the source of suffering in this world? Great question. I said polka music. <laughs> Gets to me every time afflicts us, attacks the bones. Need an orthopedic after that. You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased the land, but stretch out your hand, but it doesn't read and touch who he is. He missed it. And he'll miss you. If he's focused on what he, you have rather than who you are. You already failed, Satan. Stretch out your hand. He's challenging God. You, God, you do this. As if Satan's sovereign over God. Stretch out your hand. Touch all that he has. He will curse you to your face. You already see the tension between the blessing and the curse here? Well, now, third initiative. Verse 12. The Lord said to Satan, literally the accuser, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, but God knows something Satan has overlooked. God doesn't say all that he is is in your hand, does he? No. It says bearing upon how you live your life, 
bearing upon how you pray for family members. Don't overlook verse 1 and just immediately race to verse 2 in your life experience. Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Do you see the tension of the hands here? Satan wants this to be God's handwork. No, God's savvy. So the Lord in his permissive will, notice the will of God. There's the decretive will, there's the directive will, there's the permissive will. When you ponder the will of God, you've got to break it down. This is the permissive will. Behold, all that he has, not all that he is, is in your hand. But notice that God is sovereign, so he sets the parameters. Satan doesn't. Only against him. Now that's a verse one thing. This is the, a verse one, who he is better. Only against him. Do not stretch out your hand. And he repeats the hand issue. For emphasis. And so you and I are told here at this point, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Three significant initiatives. Boundaries have been set. Permissive will is now at the forefront. But at the same time, out of all this, God remains sovereign. And we've got to understand that when we're dealing with suffering as it relates to who God is. I'm back to Dr. Comp. When Kevin's leukemia relapsed, I started to search for a bone marrow transplantation donor for him. He didn't have a brother or sister who was a match. And while we waited for a matched, unrelated donor to be found, precious time seemed to be wasting. Every week I had to face his dad, Anthony, and tell him that I had no further progress to report. During that tormenting wait, Kevin's medical status was not the only thing that was undergoing change. When I first met Anthony, he wore a small gold cross tucked under his shirt. But after Kevin relapsed, that cross came out on top of this father's shirt where all could see it. Soon Anthony replaced it with a larger cross that bore a suffering savior. At one particular tense visit, when I could report no progress in the donor search, Anthony kicked a wastebasket across the room. Embarrassed by his loss of control, the man apologized. And so I then asked him, quote, What kind of terms are you and God on these days? Unquote. Stunned by my question, Anthony replied, Wow. You really went to the heart of the matter. Comp writes, inevitably, personal suffering goes to the heart of the matter. Our relationship with God, which is what we're going to explore together in this series. Let's stand together. So, Father, we've looked at the personal characteristics 
we realize verse 1 is foundational to this whole book. While Satan goes after the verses 2 onward, you value verse 1 as foundational. Who we are before what we have. Who we are before you. So if there is one here this morning who hasn't established the verse 1 principle of life, that I am a child of God, I belong to the family of faith. I pray you'll speak to their heart and draw their attention to the cross of Christ where Jesus died for our sins. In this cosmic struggle of 6 through 12, remind each of us we can't figure out all of the issues of life. So we have to trust the one who knows them and is sovereign over them. So if there's any here in this second service that have experienced loss, remind them of what Job said. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, that you are owner and we are managers. So, Father, even when we live by grace, we find ourselves losing the blessings. Don't let us confuse blessings with grace. We can lose the blessings, but we can't lose the grace. I pray we're verse one people. We realize that you are a gracious, sovereign God. So help us now to take what is both visible and that which is invisible. Pull it together as we develop a better understanding as to why things are the way things are as we continue to give you all the praise. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.